Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. There you are. Now I can see you. I have these wonderful glasses that my kids call the old man glasses that tint when I go outside and when I get like bright lights on me. So I'm automatically, it's hard to see inside. And then when it's dark, it's even worse. Um, In case we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Josh and it's truly great to be here with you. We're kicking off a new series uh, this morning. And what we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks is this idea of catching a vision, uh, going to work, doing things. And, And so when we think about that as followers of Christ, what do you dream about God doing in your life? I'm going to give you some space this morning to just be creative, just think, just allow God to speak to you this morning about what he wants to do through you. Now, this next statement might sound like a cat poster, but it's true. Change starts in your mind, right? A cat poster, right? Everybody agrees. It sounds like, the, you know, you go to those seminars and they got those posters on the wall. It, change starts in your mind. It, it, it starts with a picture of what could be or maybe should be. That's where change begins. What has God put on your heart? Or what has God put in your mind to build or better his kingdom? What has God put in your heart to bring glory to his name, to to help others to change the world? For most people, the answers to those questions are kind of elusive. When we think about what God's specific mission for my life is, many of us, the answer is, I have no idea. And that's okay. Because today we're going to look at four questions to ask yourself to help us come up with the answers to those questions. In 2010, Eve Pohl planned a medical missions trip going to Ethiopia. And shortly before they left, there was a, a, an event that happened in Iceland, of all places. A volcano erupted, and it, it really hindered a lot of the air traffic. So even her team, planning this medical missions trip, finally were able to arrive in the capital of Ethiopia, only to find out that the mission that they were going to be working with, the, the, the director of that mission didn't want their help after they arrived. It's kind of one of those details you want to find out before you leave. Um, so even her team, they began looking for what God would have for them. And they came across this community that was located in a slum outside of Addis Ababa. And this community had 130,000 people that lived on a slum. Now, understand what that is. It's not they lived next to the slum or they lived near the slum and think garbage dump. They lived on it. 130,000 people. And Eve shortly came home after that trip. And she began to be broken. She began to hurt because she said, that 
is what God has for me. That is the mission that God has for my life. That is the direction that God is pointing me to. And so 10 years later, there's a ministry called Hope for Cora that even her team have started. And through that ministry, tens of thousands of people have been fed. Tens of thousands of people have been educated. Tens of thousands of people have heard the gospel. And to this point, tens of thousands of people have not yet responded to the gospel, but they have heard the gospel. There are weekly Bible studies. One of Bridgewater's own young men from Montrose campus, Jake Bonner, he lives there full time, carrying the message of Christ, all because a woman named Eve was willing to say to God, God, what do you have for my life? What direction do you want me to go? What vision do you want to place on my heart so that I can change the world? I think many of us who are Christ followers have wrestled with questions similar to that. Questions like, what does God want you to do? Just so we're all on the same page, let's have a moment of honesty. My hand's the first one to go up. How many of you have ever asked that question? God, what do you want me to do? Right? Okay, so you're in good company. You can look around and you can recognize that, yes, this is something that a lot of us have wrestled with. How do we accept what God wants for us so that he can change the world through us? Now, last week was Father's Day, and my family told me I had to give you a warning that this was going to be a dad joke. Okay, so everybody understands we're about to have a dad joke here, so just tolerate me for a second. This morning, we're going to look at the shortest person in the Bible. Anybody know who that is? No, not Zacchaeus. It's Nehemiah. I want to hit the drums. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at Nehemiah this morning. That was good, right? See, I got some good ones. I'm going to have to tell my family about that. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, he is an Old Testament uh, character who, if you read his story, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be going through this story, it is just loaded with stuff, with good stuff. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at Nehemiah is we're going to look at how he found God's vision for his life. And interestingly enough, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how that vision that he thought God wanted him to do, God took that small vision, which is really not small, and just exploded it. When he was willing to follow what God wanted for him. So how do we know what God's vision for our lives is. This morning, we're going to ask ourselves four questions. So the first question we're going to ask ourselves is, what needs am I curious about? So if you don't know what God wants you to do, if you don't know what God's mission for your life is, or if you don't know what God's vision for your life, or how God's going to change the world through you, these are the questions that you need to ask. The first is this, what needs am I curious about? about. We're going to be looking in Nehemiah chapter 1. Throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through this, most of this book. Um, but Nehemiah 1 starts like this. 
the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Now, for context, that's roughly November or December in the year of 446 B.C. We're going to get why that's sort of important, okay? So just bear with me. While I, Nehemiah, was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah starts off, and this is a story that Nehemiah is orating. He is giving this to us directly. So this is Nehemiah's version of events. Now, at this point in Nehemiah's life, he had never been to Israel, which means he had never seen Jerusalem, but yet he's asking about Jerusalem. Um, This is roughly 140 years after Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonian Empire, shortly after that time, they fell to the Persian Empire. In 538 B.C., and this is why this is important, in 538 B.C., roughly 100 years previous to Nehemiah writing this, the Persian Empire allowed Jews to return back to Jerusalem. So, Jewish community, Israel, was overtaken by the Babylonians, which then began overtaken by the Persians. Then the Persians said, you guys can go back to your homeland. So roughly 92 years before Nehemiah was born, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. Why didn't more Jews return? I know that's a question that maybe some of you are wondering. Why wouldn't you be why wouldn't you want to go back to your home, to your homeland? There was tens of thousands of Jews that didn't go back to the Israel to Israel when they could have. And you might think about it logically. They had established themselves, they had built homes, they had had jobs, they had had families, and so they're in this foreign land surviving, trying to even thrive. But this is where we see Nehemiah being curious. He, he questions his, his brothers, his kinsmen. And he says, what is God, what is going on in Jerusalem? So as we begin to try to seek out what God's vision or mission for our life is, what is God doing that provokes your curiosity? Or maybe what is God not doing visibly that sparks your attention? Curiosity is the seed of creativity and passion and so much more. What needs, what needs that you see around? What spark your interest or draw you in? Maybe you're curious about helping others. Maybe you're curious about firefighting or being an EMT. Maybe you're curious about hope for Cora. Maybe you're curious about food for the hungry or children's, uh, children of prisoners. Maybe you're curious about elderly who can't afford the medical attention they need. Maybe you're curious about foster care. Maybe you're curious about literacy. What needs are you curious about? So Nehemiah's vision began with curiosity. 
And then as we see, as we continue to read this story, it turns into and it morphs into so much more. Verse 3 says this, Nehemiah's brothers said to him, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I, when Nehemiah heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's curiosity quickly turns into brokenness and and weeping. It says he mourned and fasted and prayed for days. So as we're working through this sequence of finding out what God's mission is for your life, what are you curious about? And the second question is, what needs break my heart? What needs break my heart? There may be dozens of things that you are curious about. As you start to think through this and you start to maybe even come up with an actual list, there may be dozens of things that you are curious about. But likely, there are only a few things, maybe even one or two things, that truly break your heart. Most of us, our hearts don't have the capacity to break over 10 things. We could be curious about 10 things, but if we start to allow our hearts to get broken over 10 things, it's going to send us into a bad place. Fair? But what are those one or two things? What need breaks my heart? Now, as we begin to ask ourselves these questions, we have to be practical. And and I'm going to poke a little bit, all right? So just, I'm giving you a fair warning. I'm going to poke a little bit. When we ask that question, what breaks my heart? We have to remember that that issue, whatever that thing is, it's not about you. It's not saying, well, you know what breaks my heart? When people don't wear their masks right, that breaks my heart. Or it breaks my heart when my boss didn't give me the day off that I requested. That just breaks my heart. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about something that is you focused. We're talking about what breaks your heart that you see out there in the world. That, that what is that one thing or that two things that breaks your heart? If that doesn't change the message of the gospel... The kingdom of God will be forever impacted if that thing doesn't change. That is the thing that breaks my heart. Some of you right now, you feel that burden. You know what that thing is. I can can look out and I can see that some of you are like, yeah, I know what what that thing is that burdens me, that breaks my heart. God has wired us with passions and burdens. And we feel things. We are emotional creatures that feel and hurt. And when we begin to identify that thing, that thing that affects the world, that thing that has impacted our lives, that thing that we need to see mended, that is when we begin to understand what God's passion and vision is for us. As we look at when we're trying to figure this out, as we try to figure this out, often the thing that we are passionate about, the thing that breaks our heart, 
is something that we have previously struggled with. That's why we see people who are recovering addicts, they're, they're passionate, they're, what breaks their heart is people struggling with addictions. Or people who, who have struggled with, with uh, infidelity or struggled with looking at things that they shouldn't have, they're passionate about correcting that in other people's lives. People who are struggling with other sins, we see that that's what breaks their heart when we, we are passionate about things that we have overcome through God. Maybe, and I'm going to try to help here this morning, maybe as we're trying to look through these things, maybe our passions are adoption. And we're going to put a list here. This is not an all-inclusive list. I didn't only come up with 16 things that, that's it. There's only 16 broken things in the world. But to help us look through this, maybe we're passionate about people struggling with drugs or foster care or educating students or veteran affairs or, or maybe we're passionate about politics or athletics and coaching Maybe it's community boards or other involvement in the community. Maybe it's prison ministry or Celebrate Recovery or AA. Maybe for you it's mentoring people in marriages. Maybe it's new believers. That's what you're passionate about. Or maybe it's people who are not yet believers. Maybe it's serving on the school board. Maybe it's the Chamber of Commerce or handicapped or disabled people. This is an all This is a list that you can look at and hopefully you can springboard from that. Or maybe something on here, you're like, that's the thing. Now, understand my heart here this morning as I say this. Do academically struggling kids break your heart? Maybe you're curious about it and I'm not. But that doesn't make me a bad person. Okay, that, that's just not where God has given me a passion to see, to work through. That doesn't make us bad if we don't say everything on that list is something we have to champion. Because again, we don't have that capacity. But what is that one thing that God's put on your heart? What is that one thing? What is that problem in the world or in the community that you feel that God's kingdom needs to be benefited by you in being involved in that? So the first, what am I curious about? The second, what need breaks my heart? And the third question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Is that thing, is it a God-sized vision? Now, I'm going to explain a little bit what that means, but we can kind of all, we're smart enough, we can deduce what that means. Is it a God-sized vision? Nehemiah says this in verse 11. He's, he's praying to God here. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delights in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he gives a little bit of a footnote. He says, I was a cupbearer to the king. So is that thing that breaks your heart, is it a God-sized vision? And there's two aspects to this question. The first is this. Don't settle for the insignificant. 
God didn't save us from eternal hell so that we could have normal impact on the world. That's not why God saved us. God saved us. God allowed us to believe and trust in him and his son for salvation so that we could be world changers. When Jesus started his ministry, he started with 12 disciples. And all of the, historically, all of those disciples died by the year 100 AD. Historians estimate that by the year 100 AD, from those 12 disciples, there were 1.4 million followers of Christ. From those 12 guys. In 100 years, 1.4 million followers of Christ. 200 years later, historically, there were roughly 14 million Christians, which is approximately, at that time, was approximately 8% of the entire population of the world in just 200 years believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. During those 200 years, Christians ended infanticide in the Roman Empire, the killing of live babies. They curtailed the severity of plagues in the Dark Ages by burying the dead when others wouldn't. They persevered scientific knowledges starting many of the first universities. Christians did that. Christ followers began the first hospitals, started the first hospitals. They ended human sacrifice across the globe. Christians ended the practice in India of burning a widow alive when her husband died before her. That was a practice. Christians ended that practice. Even today, Christians are on the forefront of battling slavery, which arguably there are more slaves today than there ever have been in the history of the world. If God is a rocket launcher, don't aim at the chipmunks. Is that thing that God has placed on your heart, is it a God-sized vision? You mean that thing that whatever, whatever God has given you, it's not going to come to pass. It's not going to be successful unless there's a miracle. Because if you're thinking of something that you can do on your own, it's not a God-sized vision. The second aspect to the question is that we have to remember that we need God every step of the way. Whatever that thing is, you have to remember there's no way you can do it. Because again, if you can do it, it's not big enough. It's not big enough. If you can do it on your own, by your own power, it's not a big enough vision. That's the point of what Nehemiah example for us, prayer. That's why we pray. If you're going to run to a need, in the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah sees this need of the community of Jerusalem with a wall that's torn down, and he's running towards that need. Nehemiah knew he needed backup. My best friend, uh, Chico, 
and uh, that's actually his nickname. But uh, he, he grew up in Venezuela as a missionary kid, and he was like the third David Schloniker, and so everybody called him Chico. So his name is Chico. Um, so Chico and his wife and their three kids are living in Germany right now as, um, as dorm parents at an international school, a boarding school for international missionaries. So Chico's experience was he grew up living in an international school, boarding school for missionary kids in another community in Venezuela. So that's Chico's background. So when he started this ministry, it fit, right? That was his background, that was his experience. Now, what would happen if Chico said, I can do this on my own? I don't need any help because I have this experience Well, I would have told Chico, dude, you're an idiot. Because that's not okay. Because this uh, this involvement, this change, this vision, this mission that you have for your life, you can't do it on your own. And now because of prayer, because of his his reliance on God, Chico and his, his family are making huge impacts. Because of God, Chico and his family are what we would call messengers of the gospel. Another word that we see biblically that is, comes from messengers is the word angel. Now, I know some of you right now, you just picture that little precious, precious moments figurine with the blonde hair, blue eyes, little wings, little halo, right? You, you guys figured that. And that's not what we're talking about when we say the word angel, We're talking about one who is sent from God with a purpose. When we see angels throughout Scripture, we see that they were sent by God to communicate something. They were messengers. They were envoys. You can be an angel. And I'm not talking about your little kid when they do something awesome. Oh, you're such an angel. No, we can be messengers of God communicating The power of the message. That comes when we rely on God. When we communicate that that we can't do this without you. And so we cry out to God, God, help us do this. And as as a fundamental, how do I pray? How do I pray for this? It's really simple. If you have if you have something to write down, you can follow Nehemiah's. Example, in verse 5, Nehemiah started by praising God for who he is. In verses 6 and 7, he confesses who he is. I'm a horrible person, right? So he praises God for who he is, and then he confesses for who he is. In verses 8 and 10, he remembers God for the promises that he made. And then verse 11, he brings one request. To God. Sometimes we like, we, we kind of like uh, request vomit on God. We're like this and this and this and this and this. And God knows your needs, right? God knows us and he knows us. So Nehemiah brought one request. So what are you curious about? What do you, what breaks your heart? Is that thing a God-sized vision? And the last question that we we need to take that will help us in realizing that mission and vision of God 
that he has for us is what is that one step? What is one step that I can take towards that vision? Whatever that thing is in your life, don't feel like you have to arrive there tomorrow. What is one step that I can take? At Bridgewater, as Lisa said this morning, we believe that everyone has a next step. Nehemiah's first step was prayer. We just read that in verse 11. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it reads this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, that's important for this reason. That was four months after what we just read, that Nehemiah heard of this destruction. Four months. Four months that Nehemiah had been formulating this vision internally. Four months that he had been praying to God. Four months of his dissatisfaction of his present reality. And as he prayed day after day, we see that his passion for that grew. So much so that the king noticed that Nehemiah and his, his countenance, his appearance, it changed. And Nehemiah didn't even say anything. He didn't bring it up. The king noticed that he was different. And so Nehemiah's first step was prayer. But Nehemiah's second step, that next step that Nehemiah had to take, was in his case, he spoke to the king. If you have a God-sized vision, you're going to need help. And sometimes that help comes in really unique places. As we see in this situation, we continue reading in chapter 2. When wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but the sadness of a heart. I was very much afraid. Again, Nehemiah inserts some commentary for us. Why was Nehemiah afraid? Because the king wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a nice guy. Um, Artaxerxes was not a follower of Christ. He was not somebody who worshipped God. Um, his father, Xerxes, ruled and was killed by his bodyguard general. And Artaxerxes became king when he killed the guy who killed his dad. We need to think of these kings more like mafia bosses, like just whacking somebody when they don't do what's right, less like King Arthur, more like these, uh, these mafia guys. Um, but Nehemiah was afraid because Artaxerxes was not a nice guy. When we have a God-sized vision, there's going to be moments of fear. Don't let our fear stop us from taking that next step toward what God wants us to do. Could I lose my job? Yes. That's where Nehemiah was. Not only could he lose his job, he could possibly get whacked. 
if I blow this presentation because this is where I feel God is directing us, could it impact my future at the company? Yeah, it, it can. Courage isn't a lack of fear. It's doing the right thing in spite of that fear. Nehemiah continues in verse 3, I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. Just a little quick prayer. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Remember what Nehemiah just asked for. He asked for several months, if not a year of paid vacation. But he's not done. Like, that's a huge ask. I don't know where you work, but I got two weeks off and a couple weeks coming, and that was like an act of Congress to get a two-week vacation. Nehemiah just asked for like six months to a year paid vacation. And then he continues. I also said to him, If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request." So not only does Nehemiah ask for permission to rebuild the walls of the gates of the city. Now, that was not a small feat. Historically, Artaxerxes had actually tried to build just the temple in Jerusalem, and they decided it wasn't worth it. So not only does he ask for supplies for building the temple, he asks for a house, a residence. Understand what Nehemiah is asking for. He's asking for King Artaxerxes to finance an enemy. Because historically, the Persians and the, the Israelites were enemies. And so Nehemiah is, at, this is a huge ask. But God was with him. When we look at scripture, there's no direct command from God to Nehemiah saying, you need to get that wall rebuilt. It's not there. There are often no direct commands that says, you need to take care of that foster kid. Or, or you need to volunteer at that local school. There's a mystery in this. There are things universally that we are called to do as followers of Christ, but there, when we start to drill down what God's mission for your life is, there's often a mystery in that. So what's your next step? Maybe 
your next step is to get personally involved. Maybe up until this point, you've been given to the church. You know, you're like, well, I, I give my tithe to the church, and part of that goes to Hope for Cora. Part of that goes to, you know, the, the various pregnant, pregnancy ministries, the women's ministries in the area. So I, I, I give. Maybe your next step is you need to get personally involved. Take that next step. Often, when we seek out the problems, when we seek out the answers to these problems, it's rarely a what, but it's often a who. It's often this person will benefit. It's rarely just this generic thing, but it's often very specifically pointed to someone. So who is God calling you to work with? Who is God calling you to, um, to supply the knowledge of Christ? We're going to see in the next couple weeks that Nehemiah's vision started with this wall. That, that was where he was, he was like, this is, needs to be fixed, this what? But through that, we're going to see in the next couple weeks that that what began to change people's lives forever. And it was so much bigger than what he could ever begin, begin to know. God was, doesn't just want us to feed hungry people. He wants us to tell them about Jesus. He doesn't want us just to foster children. He wants us to show them what the love of Jesus looks like. He doesn't want us just to, to help someone by putting out the fire at the house. He wants us to surround those firefighters and show them what a godly husband, a godly spouse, a godly a father or mother looks like. Maybe God is calling you to be on the school board. Not just to serve, but to make that whole school district see and demonstrate to others how we respond with a soft answer when we're being yelled at. It's more about the people than it is about the task. But the task is important too. And often that's where we get our start. If you don't have a vision in your mind right now, I, I pray that over the next seven days, when we gather again next week, I pray that you would begin to ask God and maybe even beg God to help you identify that, that thing. What breaks your heart? We're going to watch a video of a woman named Janelle. Now, Janelle is from our Tunkhannock campus, and Janelle started just like you and just like me, sitting in the, the seats every week. And then God began to challenge her and impact her life. So let's watch Janelle's story and see how God changed her. So I started attending Bridgewater. And what I loved about the church was the people. People would pull you in and just make you feel loved. But I still didn't feel connected with people on a personal level. So my son moved up to pre-K. And as I was dropping him off weekly, Heather would ask every now and then if I would be interested in serving. And I would tell her no, because I wasn't capable of it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily tell her that, but I didn't feel that 
I was mature enough with Bible knowledge to teach even the pre-K room because I'd gotten saved like later in my teens and I really didn't know a lot of the Bible other than the book of John. So after being asked many times, I decided to finally say yes to her because I figured if my kid was in the class, it would be fine. I wouldn't be by myself. I could do it and, you know, be comfortable. So I served there for three months and realized that it wasn't really a good fit for me, but I still wanted to serve. So that's when we opened up the New Montrose Church and they were looking for greeters. So I decided to be one of them for the children's ministry and fell in love with just welcoming people, getting to know people. I felt that it was an easy way to be pushed out of my comfort zone just to get to know people because I wouldn't do it on my own if I wasn't serving. After serving at Montrose for probably a couple of years, our church started getting other campuses. And every time we were told that we were, you know, opening up a new church, I never, that one part of me felt like that was for us. Until Pastor Brett had told us that we were given the Tunkhannock Baptist Church. When I heard that, I kind of like felt like this pit in my stomach. Um, it actually made me sick to think about it because I didn't want to leave Montrose. Um, I finally felt like I had a home, I made friends, and everything was going so good, but I knew that as soon as they said Tunkhannock that that's where we were supposed to go. I definitely fought it. Pastor Rich had asked me if I would consider praying about it, and the only reason I said yes is because I can't say no to someone asking me to pray about something. So uh, my husband and I felt that that was what we were supposed to do. After serving there for a few years, I was given this great opportunity to be the children's coordinator, and I just love just loving on people and watching them grow and seeing people take that next step into serving, just watching them connecting with people and learning to love people. If I could tell somebody new to serving or someone thinking about serving a few things to think about or to look at, I would say that first of all, you're serving God. Don't look at it like you're, you know, necessarily serving the church. You're serving God and growing closer to Him. And also, fellowship was big for me. It allowed me to meet a lot of new people, connect with people that have the same passions and desire as you with kids ministry. And lastly, it is an opportunity to grow. Um, I feel that it has allowed me to grow in so many different areas that I didn't think that I would ever grow in. I never, never thought that when I started teaching in pre-K that I would be the children's coordinator just a few years down the road nor did I want to. But God has just given me this desire and this growth that I can't say no to.